Instead of being on the other side of the bridge, he was the bridge. I should have asked Rebecca if they've sent any any mass media fellows to The Onion. I could probably do that job. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we learn about a fellowship that sends grad students and postdocs into the busiest newsrooms in the world. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 85. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Welcome back, Dan. Jingle bells, etc., etc. It's the holiday season. Did you go see Star Wars? I saw it. And was it amazing? I enjoyed it. Spoilers, all of them. No spoilers. Uh, I, I did I did enjoy it. You know, I. It, it's like anything else, Dan. You can't be excited about anything these days. You know, I, I watched it, and, and for the most part, I was I was pretty entertained and excited by it and eager to wait two years until the next one. And then, you know, I start reading other people's comments talking about this is garbage this is the worst thing you know and i've decided with these these superhero and sci-fi movies i'm gonna just stop overthinking it and just enjoy just enjoy the spectacle you could take my approach and just remember how great they were when you were seven (laughs) and never see another one again well i'll say this and this is going to be heresy but i've been re-watching the original three uh, not not episodes one through three, but the ones that actually came out in the 70s and 80s with my children for the first time. And I got to say, Dan, I think we've come a long way with our ability to do pacing and screenwriting since the late 70s. Cause, uh, Too slow. <laughs> uh, Empire Strikes Back, it drags in a few places. It's a little snoozer at times. The only one I remember is the one with Ewoks, and I don't know why, but... They were a big part of my childhood. But, you know, I would, me too. And, and I think the reason we might remember that one more is it came out when we were actually old enough to. Also Ewoks. And the Ewoks are cute. Yeah. My kids, uh, definitely when the Ewoks came on, they, they let out an ah, especially the baby Ewoks. I hope you're excited about this week's ethanol. I'm very excited, Dan. So as we mentioned on our last episode, we received a, a generous gift from a listener, Thea, from Berlin. And she sent us two German beers, and we drank one of them, a really nice Pilsner, last week. It's important to know that's not Berlin, Kentucky. (laughs) That's true. It's Berlin, Germany. Yeah. But anyway, she sent us a second beer, uh, this one from the south part of Germany. This is from Kempton, Germany. Uh, She told us this was in the south part of the country. But anyway, I'm going to do my best with this one, Dan. This is the from Algauer Brewhouse. Uh, Brewhouse, I assume that means like the place where they brew the beer. I would hope so. Yeah. And this is the Algauer Buble Beer Elderbrow. I'm sure that was perfectly executed. Uh, Nicely done. Uh, in preparation for this, I actually did look this up on Google Translate to have Google help me pronounce it. So I, I might help. Uh, you want me to have Google say this uh, for us? That'd be awesome. Let's see how close I got. Yeah, I, I basically could not tell the difference between your pronunciation and that one. So Nailed it. Nailed it. Does this particular beer have the $4 million pop on it? I don't know. So this also is a Kolsch bottle. And if you don't know what that is, uh, I, I would ask our listeners, you Google a Kolsch bottle. It's pretty cool. It's got a little rubber stopper in the top and then this metal apparatus that holds it in. And so I'm going to flick this open, Dan. Last last episode, it did not explode. So I'm going to believe this one's also not going Hope to Hope springs eternal. Beer here, springs once. Here we go. Beautiful. Yes, why don't done. we why don't we have more beers in this type of bottle here in the United States? These are fun. I think it's gotta be expensive. It's got a a hole drilled into the side of the neck 
And then the, the actual cork apparatus of the Kolsch bottle is a ceramic piece with a rubber stopper on the bottom of it. I, this is not a cheap thing to produce. That's true. I guess Germans are known for doing things the best way. Right. We, and we, we do things more. What's the cheapest mass-produced way? Yeah, I would can... expect that this you would want to try to wash and refill, and we would throw ours in the gutter or something. Uh, should, I, should I ship this back? No, I think you should keep it. That's a nice souvenir. Yeah, I do. I still have the one from last week. I didn't, didn't throw it away. All right, Dan, I'm pouring this. Also a good head. Um, this is a lighter colored beer as well. I'm trying to decide. It might be, we didn't do the side-by-side. It might be slightly darker than last week's beer, but I don't know, Dan. It's kind of a golden. No, la- yeah, last week you described it as straw colored. I would, I would give this one shade darker, more toward the, the orange tan side. The bitterness is much less. Yeah, definitely less bitter. Last week had that bitter more, character. A little more malty this time. Yeah, definitely some malt. Um, this is yummy. I like it. Excellent, excellent beer. Thank you so much again, Thea. Yeah, and Dan, just some foreshadowing. I see some boobles in your... (laughs) This is definitely a buble beer. Yeah. (laughs) I'm almost certain that the word buble means something we don't think it means in German, and we just said something terrible. Uh, In Google Translate, uh, buble came out to buble. Yeah, uh, we're in serious trouble. Uh, So if you're German and you could tell us what buble means. Write to us. Let us know if we've made fools of ourselves. Uh, So foreshadowing, Dan, we actually have two more sets of listener beer that have come in that we've... So we're we're set, like, really into into the new year. It's going to be a good year. Happy, Happy 2018. Yeah, so keep it coming. If you want to send us beer, we will happily... Happily take it off your hands and drink it on the show. Dan, also um, some more good news. We have we have the greatest listeners. They are so generous. It blows my mind that people would actually go to the trouble <laughs> to send us beer, uh, but also go to the trouble to support us on Patreon. So I just want to say thank you to a few of our, our patrons. These, these are folks that, that give us ongoing support each month, and we are so thankful for them. So I just want to take a moment and say thanks to... Uh, Lynn, Arlen, Beth, Peter, Jada, Sarah, Ryan, Paul, Rick, and Agnes. Uh, We super appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. It's amazing. Happy New Year, and uh, we appreciate what you guys do for us. Yeah, Dan. And uh, something special that that I have for our Patreon supporters. I put a little holiday card together, and uh, you saw this, but I got got a new holiday sweater this year. Uh, yes, it is pretty fantastic. Yeah, so I'm going to share that with our patrons. I'm going to send a little a little holiday greeting over to them that shows off my new sweater. Did I tell you my wife wasn't sure if you were trying to be ironic with it or if you really thought it looked really great? I thought it looked great. Okay. <laughs> it had some boobles on it. I'll uh, give a little spoiler there. <laughs> All right. Uh, Moving on. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of our listeners, Dan, we got another email. So this came from Danielle. So I'm just going to read this really quick. Um, It said, Hi, Josh and Dan. I'm a first-year student at UC Berkeley in the Molecular and Cell Biology PhD program, which just dropped the GRE requirement, she writes in parentheses, so that's good news. And I just wanted to let you know how much I enjoy the show. I started listening over the summer from episode one, and I'm finally up to present day. Groan. Can I insert a groan there? Have you listened to episode one recently? Yeah, episode one, you know. I've gone back and listened to it. <laughs> not like it's not like it's good now, but we were just so much more uptight back then. Don't go back and listen. Yeah, I'm thankful you kept going after uh, episode one. It helped me get in the right frame of mind as I prepared to start my program. Now I'm in the midst of rotations and enjoy listening to new episodes while I'm sorting my fruit flies. I'm spreading the word about the podcast to my classmates so they can listen too. Thanks for making the show. I look forward to new episodes. Best, Danielle. Thanks, Danielle. Very kind. Thanks, Danielle. Yeah. Sorting Fruit Flies. That's uh, my favorite punk indie band. No? (laughs) I I like it. I'd listen to that. All right, Dan. Got some science and news for us this week? I sure do. 
Okay, Josh, you're on Twitter periodically, yeah? I have been known to tweet. Did your head explode recently, particularly Friday, when you learned that the CDC is banned from using the following words in their budget requests? Vulnerable, entitlement, diversity, transgender, fetus, evidence-based, science-based. The report Thursday or Friday from the Washington Post was that the CDC had been banned from using these terms in their budget requests. Yeah, they actually saw this, I think, on Friday evening, uh, Friday night before I, before I went to bed. And so, uh, so I shared it on, on Twitter as, as many other, other people did. I was, I was probably outraged, as others were. Yeah, on its face, a totally insane request. So what are you supposed to do at the CDC if you are not doing things that are evidence or science-based, right? Yeah, and I think that's what, that's what jumped out at me, because I have to say... Uh, and and you know Dan, it's no secret that I do diversity work, and so <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I do. Think of another. Think of uh, an alternative. I do broadening participation for of un- groups less represented. I think you can use those. Yeah, of <laughs> underrepresented groups in the sciences. As long as they're not vulnerable, just it's okay. <laughs> but yeah, you know some of these other words. Were any of these groups containing fetuses, Josh? Because if so. <laughs> Uh, I was in the fetal position after I read this. Uh, but, you know, some of these other words, you know, entitlement, diversity, transgender, fetus. These are these are things that um, conservative American politicians tend to have disdain for. So I wasn't super surprised by that, even if I didn't agree with it. But the addition of evidence-based and science-based as banned words, um, that gave me some pause. Yeah, and I think this exploded into our, our cultural consciousness because it looks like it's part of this long pattern. So uh, under the current administration that we have, we, we've seen examples like health and human services removing questions about sexual orientation from, and gender identity from surveys that they give, removing uh, you know lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender information from their website, banning the EPA, there's a gag order on outside communications and social media, removing references to climate change from the White House website. So there have been a, a string of these uh, examples where it it looks like, and I think in many cases there are examples of the administration suppressing science and science speech, and this looks like another example of that, where words such as diversity and fetus can't be used. You can't use the word fetus when you're requesting budget to talk about Zika virus. Like, totally crazy uh, on its face. Um, I think something else is going on here. Uh, So the Health and Human Services spokesman, Matt Lloyd, came out in a statement and said this assertion that HHS has HHS is Health and Human Services. The assertion that HHS has banned words, quote, is a complete mischaracterization of discussions regarding the budget formulation process. HHS will continue to use the best scientific evidence available to improve the health of all Americans. HHS also strongly encourages the use of outcome and evidence data in program evaluations and budget decisions. Um, okay, that sounds good. Yeah, so, so it felt not, like backpedaling, right? Why do I not feel totally... Uh, <laughs> yeah, and Saturday, the agency's director, Brenda Fitzgerald, said that science is and will remain the foundation of our work. Thank you. Uh, that's good. And that the CDC remains committed to our public health mission as a science and evidence-based institution. So... Wait, can she say that? Well, that's... So, so she did say that. And let me tell you what I think happened. And, and uh, I read this also in the New York Times, but, but this actually explains 
uh, some of this to me. Well, well, hang on, Dan. I want to say so. One one thing about the one detail about that original Washington Post story. Um, so certainly the headline was eye popping, and I imagine most people read that. And then they read, oh, what are the words? And then that was it. But it did look like if you read down into that article, that specifically they were talking about putting their budget together and and what words I guess showed up maybe in in line items or line items or justifications of their budget. And it was said, basically, if you happen to use some of these words, it likely is going to be not accepted and sent back for revision. Now, what I don't know if what revision, does that mean, uh, just take the words out, we don't care? Or is it optics or is it actual policy suggestion? Yeah, so the meeting that this came out of was, uh, it was a 90-minute briefing on December 14th, last Thursday. And it was a, a meeting where they gave the the CDC senior officials gave the policy analysts this list of forbidden words, quote unquote forbidden words. And so this was not this is not a policy that they're enacting. This is a meeting where the senior officials are saying to the policy analysts, when you are writing your budget, and I think the the undertone here, the subtext is when you are writing your budget that you hope to get approved by a conservative Congress, don't use these words. I don't think this was a you may never use this word in your research or in your work. This is a, if we want to get money, we should not poke the hornet's nest by using the word transgender or the word diversity. Now, is that, uh, is that a brave stance or is that an expedient stance? I think the answer is, is obviously expedient, but I doubt that this is a policy. I think this is trying to get the disgusting work of politics done. So, so what you're saying, Dan, is this was more of, from the people on the ground within the government who are trying to do the work or can really continue doing the work. Cause a lot of these people have probably been in the government doing this work for a while. They're not saying we don't think you should do work that involves these words. We're saying, Hey, we're trying to help you get your budgets passed to make this go smoothly. Try to avoid these words because they tend to be triggers to a conservative Congress. Yeah. As best as I can tell, this really only referred to this budget application process. Um, I made the the mistake as I was trying to do some more research into this of wading into um, the, the sort of alt-rightish blogosphere to see how was a, a group of people with maybe extreme conservative values looking at this issue. And what I saw over and over again was a call to not make science political. Now, I think we've already crossed that bridge, but but from their writing, they were saying, you know, the word diversity is a political word. The word vulnerable is a political word. The word entitlement. Um, you can talk about science. You can talk about uh, populations that may be susceptible to a disease, but when you bring in some of these other words, you're making it a political statement, not a... Uh, a scientific one. I don't exactly agree with that. The word fetus, I have a very hard time. Uh, it's a scientific term. I don't know other terms that describe that particular life stage, but uh, that that is the stance, and I think this is an expedient process for getting money allocated. Or evidence-based. Super uh, controversial. <laughs> so did you read some of the alternatives that they were allowed? Yeah, I saw something like, we use evidence along with community standards or something. Yeah. Like so the suggested replacement for evidence-based or science-based was... CDC bases its recommendations on science in consideration with community standards and wishes. So, science and wishes. Yeah. Uh, I don't My know. My second favorite band. Yeah, you know, I think that's the broader thing that has been frustrating to those of us in the scientific community over time, you know, whether we're talking about climate change or or gender studies or or even the inability of of CDC to study gun violence as a public health issue. If we think the answer might be something that we don't want it to be, 
we would rather let's not even look, right? And what that actually, you know, I was thinking a lot about that. If that's your viewpoint, you know, if you're saying, I don't think the the CDC should study gun violence as a public health um, issue, or I don't think scientists should study uh, climate change, then really that what that presupposes is on some level you actually believe that gun violence is a public health issue or that climate change um, is a big problem because you're pretty sure if somebody looks at it, they're going to find what they're going to find. Yeah, it's an ostrich problem. Uh, and, it, and it's, you know, you and I don't agree with it. Um, and I think in this case, they're just trying to maintain their budget by getting around those people. Yeah, and I'll say, Dan, this this is not a brand new thing because I actually spoke to some some individuals who are familiar with the NSF, and this was this was a while ago, Dan. This was probably at least at least a year or more ago, and and there were some individuals involved, uh, program officers with the NSF, who were advising people writing NSF proposals to avoid the use of words such as um, sexuality, gender, climate. Um, in their titles, and we're actually sending those back and recommending that the researchers change the titles because Congress people would tend to look through the titles, and some of those would certainly jump out as as targets. Yeah, censorship for a different reason, basically to avoid attracting unwanted attention. So what I will say is I don't think this is one of the most egregious examples of suppression of scientific speech. Um, but don't let that make you think that those things aren't happening. And so I think as scientists, we need to be aware. We do need to stand up for uh, what we believe is the scientific method that helps society improve. Um, and I, I think we saw examples of that this week, Josh. Uh, the last information that I have right now is that the grad tuition waiver tax increase was killed in that final revised version of the tax plan. So anybody who called, hopefully you're... Uh, your voice was heard. Despite what other what other outcomes may come of this tax plan, we could certainly classify that as a win. It was only because people did speak up um, about that specific provision that it ended up not being in the final plan. And so, actually, as we record this, the Senate will be voting the final vote on this plan within the next couple hours. Um, but I'm assuming that's going to be be voted into law. But at least if there's good news, there's not going to be the grad tax. So, yay. Yep. We'll, we'll tweet about updates. Stay tuned. <laughs> All right. Enough Dan. of politics, Josh. All right. Let's get into our interview. All right, Dan, let's turn a corner into something more positive. You know, we talk a lot about science and we talk a lot about media. Actually, we were just talking about science in the news. So this is a good segue into that. Um, so I had some time to sit down with Rebecca Corlew, and Rebecca is director of the AAAS Mass Media Science and Engineering Fellows Program. And this is a really cool program that I learned about not too long ago although it's actually been in existence for, I think, over three decades. Um, but what this program does is it, it allows scientists, and especially grad students, postdocs, uh, science trainees, to leave the lab for the summer and actually go work as journalists in some of these mass media um, organizations. I was poking around on the website and, and looked at the 2017 Mass Media Fellows. And, and these individuals were working really cool places like the LA Times, Univision, P3, 
PBS NewsHour, Scientific American, the Smithsonian, Washington Post, NPR, uh, Discover, Slate. Um, so just lots of really, really high profile. I've heard of those places. Yeah, right. Yeah. These are places we know about. Jim's 1987 <laughs> blog. <laughs> That's right. Hello, PhD. Maybe we can get <laughs> yeah. one of these. Fellas. We should. We should. We should try to. Yeah. So anyway. Uh, Pay them in beer. Anyway, here here's my interview with Rebecca. I was super fascinated. Um, it really made me wish I could go back in time and and pursue this opportunity. But but let's learn more about it. Hi, I'm Rebecca Corlew. I am the director of the Mass Media Fellowship at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. So tell me a little bit about this Mass Media Fellowship. What is that? So the fellowship is actually really well established. Um, it was launched in 1974, and its mission is threefold: to enhance the coverage of science-related issues in the media in, in order to improve public understanding and appreciation of science and technology, two, to strengthen the connection between scientists and journalists, and three, um, to provide an intense training experience for scientists who want to hone their science communication skills. The model uh, hasn't really changed in 45 years. So we take about 15 to 20 scientists engineers and mathematicians, and we put them at um, news and media sites for 10 weeks over the summer. And while they're there, they get thrown into the deep end of science reporting. Um, They're treated like other science reporters at that site and expected to publish close to the same rate. And um, the sites vary quite a bit. We have national newspapers like the Washington Post and the LA Times, regional papers like Raleigh News and Observer, Um, We also have radio sites like NPR and KQED, and we have magazines like uh, National Geographic, Smithsonian, Discover, Wired, Scientific American. Wow, that's that's really cool. So are these are these fellows who who participate in this fellowship program? Are these mostly graduate students or who who are these people that, that get these fellowships and apply for these fellowships? It's, um, it's a mix between, we have some undergrads, um, mostly graduate students, and then also um, growing in number, we have a lot of postdocs as well. So this sounds pretty intense. So you said they're, they're thrown into these media experiences, and, and the expectation is they actually will be producing something, right? So I can imagine if you were at, a, at a, the Washington Post, you're probably writing articles of some sort. So how much experience do you do these scientists have with doing that before they, before they show up on day one for their, their internship? It, it actually varies quite a bit. We have some scientists who have never written a piece for the public. Um, we have some scientists who have their own blog, but it doesn't get followed very much. And then we have some fellows who um, are already freelancing and already writing pieces for Nautilus or Scientific American or occasionally a scientist will write a piece for the conversation, but it really, it varies quite a bit. Hmm, that's really interesting. So do, so those are some, some fairly different types of media outlets that these fellows seem to go to. Um, you mentioned some national print, regional print, radio, a magazine. Are those placements made based on interests that the the applicants have to the fellowship program or those random assignments or, or how would I get paired with my, uh, with my site if I was to get one of these fellowships? Yeah, good question. We pair down the um, applicant pool to finalists and then we send those finalists 
their applications to the media sites. And the media sites choose based on voice, experience, and just who they think would do well at that site. So, so for example, one um, publication that we have, Slate, has a really specific voice. They want someone who's questioning and has, um, has sharp opinion pieces. Um, and so they usually choose a fellow who they think, based on their writing samples, will be able to do that. Yeah, and I assume I assume NPR, National Geographic, would not want the same the same type of point of view. Yeah, right. And they can really tell from the the writing sample what their voice is like. That's really interesting. Do you have any examples or some cool experiences some recent fellows have had, or maybe some cool examples of yeah. some things they've produced during their fellowship? Yeah. So I first, I should mention um, that I, I left this out that every year we have one to three fellows that are placed at Spanish language sites like Univision or CNN Espanol. So these are scientists who usually their first language is Spanish or they're completely uh, fluent in Spanish. And while they're at Univision or CNN Espanol, they're reporting, they're reporting and writing in Spanish the entire time. So my first year directing the fellowship was 2016, and our Spanish language fellow was placed at Univision, Pedro Piqueros. He turned out to be this amazing fellow who produced 38 articles in just 10 weeks. And one of the stories he reported was about this little girl in a Spanish language, um, a Spanish speaking community in LA. She was getting sick from air pollution because of these hidden urban oil wells. So one of these oil wells was right next to her house. It was literally outside her bedroom window. And she was getting sick from the fumes from, from this oil well. And in her family's fight with the oil company to comply with environmental protection guidelines, she actually sent a video to the Pope because the land was owned by the Catholic Church. But the church, at least at that time, wouldn't respond to the girl or her family. Um, and it's a long story about... Uh, their very long fight and what it's doing to the community. But because Pedro, he was actually a um, chemical and environmental engineer, that was his background, and his first language was Spanish. So he was able to report the story in a really unique way because he could essentially speak three languages. He could speak Spanish, English, and science. So when he would call the environmental scientists, they would give him a little more information than they would a standard reporter. And he, when he was interviewing the people in the community who only spoke Spanish, they would also give him a little bit more. And when he reported it in Spanish, it was more relevant to their community because they could fully understand it. So this is a classic example of a scientist actually being the bridge between people and scientific advances that can better their lives instead of being... Um, on the other side of the bridge, he was the bridge. So that's one example. That's amazing. That's something we talk about on the show quite often is the importance of scientists being in non-research science jobs, but actually have people trained in in not just scientific disciplines, but scientific thinking who are, are in, in different aspects of our society. And, and that's a great example of journalism and why that's so important to have scientific thinkers um, in, in those types of careers as well. Any other examples that, that, that come to mind? Yeah. One example from uh, before my time was Anissa Ramirez, who in was placed in 1996. She was placed at Time. And the summer, the 
science correspondent for time actually went on vacation that summer. So she was the only science reporter. And um, the that was the year that the life on Mars story really came out and started to get a lot of a lot of press. And so she was the only reporter. She, she got to write all of these cool um this long, long article about, about that. And she actually got a cover on time magazine as, you know, as a, as a fellow for the summer, she got a cover. I think, I think I actually have seen her give a a talk before I saw her give a speech at a conference I attended. um, And it was really cool because isn't her background, she's some kind of like structural, she studies like chemical structures or something like that. And I believe, I believe, didn't she write a book recently on like the physics or the science of football? Yeah, yeah. She, so she's actually a pretty prominent, she calls herself a science evangelist now. And um, she's a writer, a speaker, an advocate. Um, she's kind of everywhere. And that's not really surprising for our fellows go on to do really cool things. Well, well, that's a, that's a good set. Well, yeah, first of all, she was amazing. And, you know, I've gone to this conference uh, for eight or nine years now. And she's one of the handful of of presenters that I remember from that conference. Um but yeah, I had no idea she was a, a mass media fellow. That's that's super cool. Um, so that's a good segue, though, into another question I had, and that is, how common is it for these mass media fellows to actually transition into some sort of mass media um, or even science communication more broadly position? So for so the fellowship is almost forty five years old, and it's kind of remained about the same that a third of the fellows will go into science journalism. And then a third of the fellows stay at the bench um, and use science communication in their careers. And then a third of the fellows do something like Anissa, where um, they go off and do something very innovative. They write a book, they have YouTube channels, they work at museums, they work for societies in communication roles. So so one thing that I know from, from when we spoke in setting up this interview, um, you mentioned there are fellow new fellows every year who do these fellowships every summer. Uh, when let's say we have listeners who are listening to this and they're like, "Oh my gosh, this sounds perfect for me. This sounds like exactly the type of thing that I would love to do and the experience I'd like to have." How can grad students or postdocs listening to this show? How can they potentially get one of these fellowships? So the, the application period is between October 15th and January 15th. So there's definitely time to still apply. Um, the application is online, and um, you can find it at AAAS.org slash MMFellowship. There you'll find information about the fellowship, um, all the past articles from the, pre- from the fellows, and the application. I've also done this year a webinar giving tips on how to apply. I have several sheets, uh, uh, several tip sheets on how to make your application stand out, as well as a question answer uh, page. And and they can also, if you have any questions about the application process, you can also um, email me at r-c-o-r-l-e-w at AAAS.org. That's cool that you've, you've put all that information together. Um, do you have... Do you have a few quick tips that you could give right now for for someone who's listening who might might be interested? Maybe maybe they're they're thinking, okay, I'm not ready to apply by January 15th, but as I think through the rest of my graduate career, maybe I'd like to make applying next year a target. I'm going to try to get some experiences this year that might make me a more competitive applicant. What uh, what are some tips for somebody who that you would give to a grad student or postdoc who might want to apply? 
Sure. I have, I have a ton of tips. Um, I have three <laughs> pages of tips online. Um, one, one thing I would say to people who, who think they're not ready to apply yet, um, I would really encourage them to apply this year. For one thing, it does not um, diminish your chances next year if you apply this year. So the more you apply, it's, it's, it's probably actually helpful to your application and not harmful. Um, and through applying this year, you'll you'll get the experience that your application will be a little bit better next year. Part of the reason I'm saying that is that the um, competition for the for the fellowship is pretty steep, and there are fellows every year who apply multiple times. There are fellows who applied maybe three times in a row, and they ask me, um, why did I get chosen this year when I didn't get chose, chosen in the past? And a bit of that, when you have an application that's so competitive and it gets down to a really small number of acceptances, there's a little bit of chance in who, what reviewers read your application, what sites end up um, reviewing your application. So if you're able to do it this summer, um, even if you think you don't have the experience to apply, I would encourage you to apply this year. And if you've applied in the past and you haven't gotten it, I would apply, I would encourage you to apply again. As far as your actual application, um, the most, the, the heaviest weighted piece is your writing samples. And you can be a seasoned reporter and not uh, have a lot of, have a lot of SciComm experience and not get it. And you can be a, someone brand new and get it. And it'll depend on your voice and the quality of your writing. And some people that get it are actually surprised. And they say, I didn't think I was that good. And it's because they didn't know because they had never had anyone read their writing. So I would, I just kind of encourage everyone to apply. It's uh, everyone that's done it has said it's a life changing experience. My alumni are so um, enthusiastic about the program. They tweet about it constantly. They tell everyone to apply because it's just really amazing. For the fellows who are graduate students and postdocs, does, does this fellowship provide funding for them? And, and do they tend to have, because this will take them out of the lab, obviously, for, for two months in the summer. Has that been an issue for any of the fellows? Yeah. So, um, so the fellowship is, it's a paid fellowship. You get $500 a week um, for 10 weeks. So you get, you have $5,000 for the summer. Um, it is full time. So you can't, continue working while you're doing it. It's like, it's similar to, so I went to a Woods Hole scientific um, summer program when I was a scientist and I was expected to be in the lab at Woods Hole the entire time doing science for the program, um, not doing my own science. It's, it's similar to that. You, you're, do, you're reporting full time. It is for some people because you have to move to another city. So you might be moving from California to Washington, D.C. and paying rent in Washington, D.C. It can be a little financially tight, but everyone that says they that everyone that has done it says it's worth it. It's kind of one of those things that um, is worth it for your career. Yeah, I imagine that this experience can really, if you're someone who's interested in science communication or mass media in any form, having this on your CV can boost your career in unbelievable ways. Yeah. Even for science jobs, even for, um, if you, we have alumni who are, um, directors of institutes of scientific institutes, and they say that the communication training really helped them bring their career to the next level. I, 
I did leave one thing out, and that, that is that we pay for travel to D.C. and then to your site as well. Well, that's great. I'm trying to think. You know, I think you've covered you've covered most everything. I mean, I think this sounds amazing. Um, I'm almost wondering, you know, I have, I have a science podcast. Do you think that would make me a competitive applicant for this fellowship? Yeah, apply. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell my wife and kids that I'm moving to California for the summer. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, let me just ask you briefly. So what, what is your background, Rebecca? Um, so I, I got my PhD at, actually at UNC um, in neurobiology. And then I did a postdoc. And during my postdoc, I decided that uh, I didn't want to just, I didn't want to be a PI because I, I love um, doing some of the extra bench activities that, that um, make science go. And one of those is um, public engagement. Another one is broadening participation. And, um, and the last one is mentoring young scientists and giving young scientists um, opportunities to figure out what, where their talents lie outside the bench. Um, so I started running a fellowship program while I was still at, while I was still a scientist and then decided that I kind of wanted to do that stuff full time, even though I love science and, um, I miss it sometimes. I, I think that if I wasn't doing running fellowships and, um, running programs for public engagement with science, um, I would miss that more. So, so then I, I started working at um, AAAS about a year and a half ago, and I, I love my job. That's great. I mean, it seems like a super cool job, and and you're always meeting new people, and 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 really, I mean, and that's a, that's a lot of what what I enjoy about my job is um, not my podcast job, but my <laughs> the job that pays the bills. It's really helping young scientists get where they want to go, and that's really satisfying. Cool. Well, thank you, Rebecca. It's always great to talk to you and hopefully we'll catch up again soon. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Dan, that was my interview with Rebecca. That was amazing. I'm going to go apply right now. Am I eligible? You know, I don't see why we wouldn't be. I, this seems like if you can apply to this and get into this program, this is like winning the, the career lottery. Can you imagine the number of contacts you'll make, the amount of actual experience you'll gain by interacting with people who do journalism for a living? I don't know if you've ever ever learned about journalism. I've taken a, a handful of classes when I had access to free classes at UNC, and it's hard work. Writing, uh, writing the news is hard work. It's not simple like sitting down and just typing up a few ideas. The amount of fact-checking that goes in, the way that you compose and construct a story, um, the elements of, of how you narratively bring the reader along, it's difficult. And I think to have this real experience would be incredible. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of utility in having people who are scientifically trained going into journalism. If you think about it, being a good journalist and being a good scientist has some similarity. A lot of it is identifying what what are the interesting and important questions to ask, and then where do I go to find that information? Uh, what are the counterpoints can be uh, can be a sign of a good story. Uh, but you're you're absolutely right. I mean, what an amazing experience if you're someone who thinks you might be interested in science communication to actually go and and not just you know write for a blog or whatever, but go actually live as a journalist at write a, a few stories place. for CNN. Yeah. yeah. I'm fascinated by, um, you send in these writing samples, and what she said is, 
whether you have a lot of experience or a little experience, what they're looking for is your voice, which is it's kind of a cool notion. And I wonder, I'm, I'm going to submit a few writing samples just to find out if I have a voice. I think uh, mine is... Which uh, publication is Irreverent and sarcastic, sarcastic yeah. yeah. with a grudge holding yeah. a chip on their shoulder. Well, <laughs> that'd probably be uh, Slate, no? Actually, yeah, yeah, probably not Discover or... The Onion? I could do the onion. <laughs> I have a science journalism gig at the onion. I should have asked Rebecca if they've sent any any mass media fellows to the onion. I could probably do that job. Uh huh. Maybe highlights. If you're, if you're listening, the you're, onion. Let me know. <laughs> I could do that. As a kid, did you read highlights magazine? I did. I yeah. That. Yeah, I could do the goofus and gallant in the lab. <laughs> that would be funny. Yeah. So I just wanted to reiterate the deadline to apply this year is January the fifteenth. So that's coming up. But as Rebecca mentioned, it is not too late to apply. I know I would be questioning, like, am I really qualified to do this? But um, certainly, if you think this would be cool for you, put yourself out there, give it a try over the holiday break, get some writing samples together. Um, and if nothing else, would be a great experience, a great preparation to maybe try again Try again next year. That's right. Try, try again. It, it is uh, an experience that if you're interested in science communication, you should do everything you can to get into it. Yeah, and if you want some tips, Rebecca was very open to being contacted. And she, as she said, she's got a lot of advice for people who might want to apply. All right, Josh, time for etymology. Okay, let's hear it. The clue last week was, don't swat this genus of woodcutting insect. It is an important pollinator. This probably narrows it down for you a little bit. Okay, well, wood, you know, woodcutting, you know, first, obviously, I started thinking about termites. Yeah, that's a pretty that's, good guess, but they don't but pollinate. But they're not cutting, and they don't pollinate. Oh, wood cutting. An ant? Uh, they're probably pollinating <laughs> ants. That's not what I'm after. Mm, it's like a carpenter bee? Or that's it. <laughs> uh, that's not the genus. That is the, the common name. The genus name is Xylocopa. I Xy- totally cheated. I just read it off. That's all right. Yeah. Uh, xylo is wood, and copa is cutter. So, uh, Xylocopa. Xylocopa. Copa Cabana. Oh, you always come up with these related tangential words that I always, you know, I wonder if they're. I'll look it up later. Well, Rebecca said they're they're looking for the right voice, so yeah, I'm just right. putting myself out there. Barry Manilow voice. Xylo, you may recognize from xylophone or xylem in a tree. So uh, there's your root. And I don't know, have you are you familiar with these particular bees? These like in the southeast we have them. They're these big fat bees that drill into your house. I have some that that like to bore into the trim wood of my house and they, they form this little tunnel and that's where they lay their eggs and they're, oh, they're yeah. huge they're like as big as your thumb oh you know what I actually did have to replace some siding that had holes and I was blaming it on the woodpecker who kept pecking into the wood but I bet what yeah. he was doing was going after the bees woodpeckers eat these bees yeah. um, and, and so they're really big bees but I found out and this is a public service announcement the males uh, are quite aggressive and they hover around near the nest but they don't have stingers, so they're all right. And the females do have stingers, but they're very docile. And uh, according to Wikipedia, they won't sting unless you catch them in your hand or otherwise directly provoke them. So if you ban words they like to use, they may sting you, but (laughs) otherwise. Uh, Not provoking is a good strategy for most bees. For most bees, I agree with you, yep. Okay, let me give you the clue, Josh, for next week. To study animal-microbe interactions, you must know every living thing in this research facility. I'll read it one more time. To study animal-microbe interactions, you must know every living thing in this research facility. Remember, we're looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. 
and we'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. All right, Dan. Thanks for that. If you have a question or a topic idea, we'd love to hear it. You can email us at podcast at hellophd.com, send us a tweet at hellophd, or you can leave us a message on the Facebook page. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. We love the feedback. If you want to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click on the Become a Patron button. Or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd and join soon, and you'll get a cool photo of me in my rockin' new holiday sweater. All right, Dan. Happy holidays to you. Yeah, I am really enjoying this uh, German beer, are you? I'm a little nervous that we can't get any more of it. Well, proof proof that I liked it. Mine is almost gone. Um, and I don't always finish the beers we drink. That is the, true. Yeah, that's true. Record, but these two German ones, I have, I have really knocked these down. It is a good thing. Happy holidays to everybody. Please take some time out of the lab and go live your lives. That's right. Happy holidays, everybody. We'll see you next year. See you in 2018.